Our God in heaven, we do indeed trust that you are with us right now, that you have gathered us, that you have made it possible for us to be together and worship and remember your love for us, that you have filled this world with so many gifts. And the greatest gift of that is your spirit that is inside of us, reminding us of your presence and of your love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So if you've been with us in 2021, we've been reading from Philippians. And we've, been, we've done a long, long time. We're all the way into halfway through or the end of Philippians 2. So we're really slowly walking through, which I like to do that. And so one of the things we've been talking about the past couple of weeks in our Lenten series as we approach Easter is that we're journeying to the cross with our self-emptying God. And I started with reading that beautiful hymn of of Paul describing in magnificent wording and language how we worship a God who is not high and mighty, deep on his throne, far away from us, but who emptied himself to become a human being, then become uh, taking the position of a bond slave to the point of the utter shame and degradation of dying on the cross. But God revealed and vindicated this shamefully crucified bond slave as himself, as God. He's worthy of all the exaltation that is only reserved for God. God bestows all that on him, on Jesus, because he is God. And so last week, then we talked about what's that mean for us then? And we embrace that pattern of self-emptying. And he says, when we do that, when we embrace that pattern of self-emptying, we are reflecting in our bodies the salvation he's made possible in our spirit, in our lives. And then he calls us uh, where you would shine like lights in the world and be able to rejoice with each other because of this. And all that sounds great. It's all high and mighty language. It's outstanding. We could talk about that in seminary. And we can start to imagine Paul is like a really comfortable theological scholar, just kind of waltzing in with his coffee and tea and just wondering, what am I going to write about today? And just have nice, really abstract theological concepts, which are great. But I really love the passage we're reading today because it starts to show what it looks like when we start to embrace that self-emptying, self-sacrificial posture on the ground in real human relationships in a broken and fallen world where sin and Satan and death are still present, wreaking havoc around us, even if they don't have power over us. And so we get to see what it looks like for Paul to experience and express those full emotions as he tries to live this out on the ground with his companions, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And praise God, I said that name without stumbling. I was like, man, I really got to practice this one all week. So let's read together in Philippians 2, 21 and 30 and see how this looks on the ground. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. All of them are seeking their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But Timothy's worth, you know, how But Timothy's worth, you know, how like a son with the father he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I trust in the Lord that I will also come soon. Still I think it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother co-worker and fellow soldier, your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for all of you and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. He was indeed so ill that he nearly died, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also so that I would not have one sorrow after another. I am the more eager to send him therefore in order that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious." 
Welcome him then in the Lord with all joy and honor such people because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for these services that you could not give me. So let me just kind of fill in the gaps of the narrative that is happening here. When we read one of these letters, we're really getting like one half of one conversation in a larger relationship, which I love that, man. I don't know if you're like me, but I love like meddling in other people's business. If I go to like a restaurant and like hear somebody on a first date and like pick up on the details of what's happening there. So we get to do that and call it worship. Praise God. So um, what's happening here is Paul is, in a, is on house arrest in Rome. And you're like, oh, house arrest, that's nice. He must be stuck at home watching Netflix and eating pancakes and stuff. Roman house arrest ain't like that. So when Rome puts you on house arrest, you still have to come up with where you're going to live, what's the home you're going to be in to be on house arrest. And then you have to find someone to help give you supplies to like live off of. And so the Philippian church, and this is one of the main reasons Paul's writing this letter, the Philippian church is uh, concerned for Paul and they send their brother Epaphroditus to Paul to give him like supplies and food and minister to his need. And so Paul's like, I'm getting ready to send him back. And man, I love him to death because he's my fellow worker and my, and my messenger and minister to my need. And he's also like, but I also have my companion Timothy and he's been with me this whole time. We planted all these churches together. He's been his main partner and all this. And he's like, I also want to send Timothy to you so that he can check up and see how you guys are doing and report back to me. And so, but as he's describing all this, he's showing what it looks like when you live that self-emptying life for the sake of others on the ground and the kind of risks and rewards that will come by embracing that kind of posture. And but first, I wanna just highlight the centrality of this, how important it is. When he's sending Timothy and he's trying to hype Timothy up and give him good recommendations, he's like, sends him a little recommendation letter of like why we should trust Timothy. He says the main reason he sends him, check this out, is that he has genuine concern for your welfare. And he says, I don't have anyone else I can send to you but Timothy because how much he will genuinely care about you. And think about of all the marks we would say for like a Christian leader or a pastor, how often it's like, he's a brilliant communicator and he's so smart. He, they're so good at this and that. And like, we imagine so many kind of uh, what David Brooks calls resume virtues, things that are impressive about a person. And that is like really shiny and attractive. But for Paul, the most central thing that makes Timothy a worthwhile pastor and a good, respectable Christian leader and someone worth imitating is that he has genuine concern for their well-being. He actually cares what happens to them. It sounds simple, but we all know how often many people don't do that and how hard it is for us to actually live with that sense of genuine concern uh, for another person's well-being. And then he says, Epaphroditus, he's one that lives this out. That genuine concern for another's well-being is expressed in a self-sacrificial lifestyle. And so Epaphroditus does that. When he comes to bless Paul, and you imagine, hey man, we're doing this really nice Christian thing by sending this guy to love the guy who planted our church, you would think that that guy would be protected. But he gets really sick and almost dies from that love. And what's Paul say about this Epaphroditus guy? He says that you should honor him. Like the most honorable person in your community is the person who demonstrates that genuine concern 
for other people to the point of risking their very lives for them. That kind of sacrificial heart is what Paul is after in their leaders, but not just the leader, but people that would learn from them, that that's the call. But that is really hard to do, to actually live constantly with a sense of genuine concern for another person's well-being, because it's really hard. And most of us, many times, will pull back. We will either attempt to have that, but shut off like uh, hard human emotions of pain and grief. Like we don't want to experience that. So we'll somehow try to have concern, but keep ourselves emotionally distant enough to not feel pain. Or other of us know what it costs to love someone and we retain that sense of isolation and distance because we know the capacity for loss and pain and disappointment. And we see that as Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, and the Philippian church embrace this, they indeed have those kinds of capacities for risk and loss. And so I want to talk about some of that. What will, it, you know, when we're having to love, genuinely concern for frail human beings who can still be harmed by sin and by sickness and by death, what kind of risk might we experience? So I want to uh, talk through a couple of those now. So for T- Paul to describe Timothy as one who seems to really get what Paul's after, he was, is, is commendable because he has genuine concern for your well-being. What's he say in the next verse after that? Your boy Paul gets salty sometimes, man. He's like, well, because he's the only one who will feel this way about you. I'm not going to say any names, but Alexander and them, you know, he's not going to have genuine concern because he's selfish. And so it just reminds me, for people that have been Christians a long time, how easy it is to, like, you invest, you pray for a person, you devote lots of time with them, you spend time with them, you try your best to, like, affirm and encourage in the right ways, and you have capacity to risk dishonor and disappointment and rejection. Anyone has tried to take a person under their wing and to genuinely love them and you pray for them and you think you do all the right things and then they reject what you're after. And Paul experiences that. He's poured his life out like a drink offering, it says in previous verses. And it's only in this case, right now, at this point in his life, he's got one person he's ready to send off that actually knows what he's about and has chosen to follow him. The rest, he says, have looked after their own interests instead. And that is a temptation for us, too. When we are starting to express genuine concern for other people, you almost retain this sense of control that you want to make sure they get it down and that they kind of buy what you're selling and trust in your wording and trust in your motives. But many times they won't. They reject them. In my former ministry, I was working with college students all the time. And it felt like it wasn't that it was pretty often that we devote lots and lots of time and energy and resources to these students to show real good signs of faith for like six months. And then they disappear. And sometimes it's even longer than that. You're like, we spent three years on you. And now it's like suddenly you're not faithful anymore. What, What has happened? But like every time I feel that way, it's like a lonely sense of rejection that makes us want to shrink back and no longer have that genuine concern because it hurts so bad. But Paul is saying we have to press on. Because we have the kind of God who does that, who keeps emptying himself and emptying himself and emptying himself out of love for other people. And so we have that emotional risk of experiencing their disappointment and rejection, but it's still worth pursuing. And when they do that, it's not usually your fault. Most of the time it's on them. It's, they have the control and power in their own situation. And so the call is to keep 
having genuine concern for other people, even if they may have capacity to reject you or to disappoint you. But this risk also comes with just physical loss and absence. So uh, there's a lot of sending here going on. And for us, that we've had this time with like distance apart and stuff, and we felt the pain of physical absence. And it's even more painful for us when it's like, man, the people you want to see are like down the street. It's like they're healthy, they're well, they're around the corner, and I can't go see them because of this pandemic. But imagine, too, in the first century, no electronic communication. You got to wait on only snail mail, and it's like ultra snail mail, man. It takes a long time for our brother to walk in some sandals on a dusty road to give you this letter. And so when they're gone, they're gone. This person that has poured into your life or you poured into their life, you don't even seem to have no idea what's happening to them for months at a time. And so that I imagine the pain of continually investing, knowing that people will leave. And we experience that to a degree. People move, people have jobs and changes all the time. And it's painful to keep risking that love, knowing that they may leave. They may have a great relationship with you and still be gone. And yet we're called not to numb out, but to keep having that genuine concern. But then in a frail and fallen world, there's capacity for sickness. And he says that he was so torn up that, that uh, Epaphroditus got sick, that he says that, that he was sick to the point of death and that God spared him. And he's so glad he did, because if not, he would have experienced sorrow upon sorrow. And how many of us can, can know people in our lives right now that are sick or that are gone now and we've loved them? We've cared for them. They've cared for us. We've invested deeply and felt that kind of pain. And too often there's a, a narrative in American Christianity that demands happiness. It's like you have to be happy and triumphalistic or you're not faithful. But here Paul is saying, as a faithful Christian person, he would have experienced sorrow upon sorrow if his man, Paphroditus, had died from his sickness. And to me, this is a really a challenging statement because last week we talked about Paul's command for us to rejoice, which he has again in chapter four for us to rejoice. And when I hear the command to rejoice, I can sometimes hear the command to be happy all the time. It's like you need to be happy and upbeat and smiling and, you know, be, be bopping around all the time because you have to be happy. You're a happy Christian. And it, it like feels like the faith is like dripping with honey. It's like it needs to be perfect and shiny all the time. But here Paul is giving permission and even like an expectation that when you are a human being genuinely having concern for other human beings with that self-emptying posture, you should expect at times to have some sorrow. And if you don't, it might mean we're not having that genuine concern for other people. We can live that life guarded and protected from sorrow. And that's a life of meaninglessness. Or you live a life that gives yourself away out of genuine concern for other people, but you might have full seasons, years at a time when you experience sorrow upon sorrow. But that pushes into what the, how Christian joy is experienced. It defies emotional states. It's about our identity and about our presence with God and with other Christian people. Christian joy is tied to Christian hope that we are able to have a sense of deep down rejoicing in the expectation that one day God is going to bring healing and restoration to the things that cause us sorrow now. And so you can at the one and the same time have sorrowful grief with real tears and able to experience and choose to live into rejoicing. 
Rejoicing does not mean not having sorrow. You're allowed to. You even should. Let yourself have that. Genuine concern doesn't mean shutting off our humanity, but living fully into it, just like Jesus did. And there's another risk that comes with this, too. The risk of letting ourselves receive. So some of y'all that nod in your head like, yeah, 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 this is how I live, man. I'm a genuinely concerned person. I give myself away, and you need to hear this next part. We also have to have, you have real human needs that require someone else to give something to you, and you got to be able to receive it. Other folks that are real good at receiving gifts, like, yeah, that's my part of the sermon. No, it's time for some self-awareness, man. Know what kind of person you are. I'm great at receiving gifts, man. I will indulge and take advantage and mooch. So this, this part, not for me. You know, if you want to offer me to buy my dinner, okay. And I'm not going to fight you on that. I'm, I will take the gift, you know what I'm saying? But for many of us, have so been taught to give ourselves away out of genuine concern that we think, I can't have any needs now. But that's also invulnerable. It lacks the emotional risk that genuinely comes with being a human being that has genuine concern for other people and letting them have genuine concern for you. And so Paul celebrates and loves Epaphroditus in the Philippian church because they come and minister to his need. He was in need and desperation, and he received their love. He let himself receive it, which of course means there's also a risk that you can have real needs that are neglected, that someone doesn't have concern for. You can't deny them and shut them off. You fully live into that human experience and let yourself feel the full range of human emotion as we attempt to give and receive that genuine concern that leaves capacity for real sorrow. So why would that be even worth it then? <laughs> Some be like, man, I don't even know if I want to be a Christian anymore. That sounds, that sounds like hard. I don't want to have sorrow and tears and needs and that kind of thing. I might just want to hang out. But this is, it's really worth it. It's worth living into this because of this serious, uh, full and fulfilling joy that comes with depending on and imitating God and experiencing these kind of deep relationships. And so for one, it teaches us dependence. And we know from the Gospels that the biggest obstacle to experiencing the love that Jesus has to offer is, is sticking our feet in the ground and, and, and wanting autonomy. If you resist depending on anybody for anything and you want to have full command and control over your life, that is the kind of person for whom the gospel, it feels stale. Like your heart's hardened toward the gospel because you want it your way. But the ones who know how to depend on God, to relinquish control to Jesus, for them, they are like running to receive what Jesus has to offer. And one of the best ways for us to experience that sense of dependence is to live our lives with that genuine concern. And so we can experience then that dependence on God because we are faced with the reality that humans will disappoint us. They will leave us. They will get sick. They will die. They will not permanently be with us. And that makes me feel needy. Even when I hear now, someone would be like, text me and they'll be like, I'm moving. I've known some of y'all for like a month and I hear about someone moving and I'm already like, ah. Oh no, I can't have that. I need them around here. Like, uh, uh, I like them. They need to be here with me right up in here, right up in this region. And so there's a sense of like numbing out and I feel scared. There's a sense of scarcity. But if that drives us to depend on Jesus, that that takes us deeper into what the gospel has to offer. So this experience of genuine concern leads to deeper joy with God as we run in prayer to him and depend on him all the more to make up for that emotional risk and emotional loss. It's another joy that comes with this, and that's sharing in God's character. 
So when we choose to live our lives with genuine concern for other people, emptying to give ourselves away to other people, there's a sense of emotional, uh, we experience all that full range of emotion. We are aligning with Jesus. Jesus wept. Jesus experienced profound disappointment when people ran from him. He was such an inefficient mission starter. For us, we talk about like gather with other pastors, like how do we efficiently make disciples and plant churches and, and multiply in this way? And if we have this nice pyramid scheme where I disciple these three people and they do more and more. And before you know it, we got 155 disciples in three years. But Jesus took 12 people, hillbillies, walked them around the wilderness in some sandals and stuff, took some winters off with them. And you would think that at the very least, those 12 would stick with them and be fruitful people. But yet at the end of his life, they all abandoned him. Peter denied him. Judas betrayed him. And yet, so when you experience the emotional ups and downs that come with genuine concern for other people, you share in the emotions that God has. You share in his lived character when he empties himself to love frail human beings. Jesus experienced his friend Lazarus dying and he wept at that tomb before he rose him from the dead, but he let himself feel that weeping and that grief. He experienced that betrayal and that disappointment and that sorrow. And so when you experience that, you are in good company with the king of the universe who experiences all the, that full range of emotion. He's not just some stiff block of concrete in the sky that is like a computer or a math book and has no emotion. He feels grief. He feels regret. He experiences disappointment. When you read the prophets, he's like, I can't believe they would do this to me. Have I not poured out everything for them? Why would they turn away from me like that? And so when we experience that from loss or from disappointment or rejection, we are in good company imitating his character. And that gives us joy, too, because we recognize we are in partnership with him. So we have that dependence on God. We share in his character. And this also leads us to capacity for deep and meaningful friendship. So I remember when I was in high school, having some friends that I had known and been friends with for like a decade, with them all the time. They were my best friends. But Jesus and genuine concern for each other wasn't really a part of the friendship. We just hung out, we played sports, we laughed, and it was fun, but there was not depth. And I go to Bible college, and within three months, because I'm with other people that were trying to figure this Christian life out together, I have like really deep friendship with them because it comes from a genuine concern that's rooted in Jesus. And so I, there were guys that I knew for three months that I felt closer with and felt a more genuine depth with because there was sincere vulnerability to genuinely care for each other and to receive care. And that then feeds into the way that I've done ministry where I get to genuinely care for people and receive care. And those are the deepest friendships, deepest sorrow and pain. Sure. But when it works out okay, even for a little bit, deepest joy is made possible by that kind of interdependence, shared concern for each other, and lived out. Now you have to risk the pain. And when we feel the experience of rejection or isolation or loneliness or fear, you pray and you press through that because there is joy on the other side of deeper friendship. And finally, we have the joy of sharing in God's mission with this. You know, one of the biggest things in our culture right now that people are dealing with is loneliness. It's an epidemic. I've seen studies, man, that have that are like the majority of, of dudes that are in their 40s have like no friends they can count on. Zero that they could call their friend. 
I remember meeting a neighbor that wasn't faithful back in Cincinnati and she saw us move into our house. And we had, of course, had like 70 people in there. Just like when I moved in here, I'm like, man, with COVID, am I going to be emptying this truck by myself? No. <laughs> you know, like 30 people were in there masked up. I'm emptying all my stuff out. But this person was like, man, I would have to pay $400 to get a moving company. I don't need friends to help me move. But like what I've, makes me think of is that when we are thinking about mission for our neighbors and where the, uh, the, the gift of the gospel intersects with what they're longing for, our neighbors hunger and long for friendship, deep friendship. And I love my, one of my main, main mantras for Christian mission is what you win them with, you win them to. And so I hate the idea of attaching lots of bells and whistles on top of the gospel because the gospel is not good enough and we need to attract them with shiny things. Because then once they press into the gospel all the more, we kind of want them not to depend on the shiny things so much and just have Jesus. But if we can win them with genuine concern for each other and with the friendship that is possible from that, we would only want them to embrace that all the more, the more they, they get into this, right? So they come to know Jesus by experiencing friendship with you and your people. And so what if you had a routine of doing barbecues with people and your na- with, with other Christians here and you invite people into that and they witness genuine concern and friendship they hunger and long for that. That is the key, a key entry point into the gospel for them. That is made possible when we practice with each other, living out that genuine concern for other people and fully living into the risks and rewards that come with that. We are invited to share in that style of mission with a God who is incarnate, who became a human being and experienced the full realm of that. And he did that. He was inviting himself over to people's houses and bringing them and meeting these friends with these friends. And it was all filled with his genuine compassion for other people and his invitation for that. And what makes that possible is that we can be so filled up by what Jesus has done for us and so filled up by the gift of the spirit that we need not fear. Even if the worst case scenario happens and you are totally abandoned by every human being you ever showed love to and they all died off, you would still have God and that, that, uh, that pain would be true and would be real, but it would not be permanent. It would be temporary. And whatever pain we would experience from risking our lives to love people will have been worth it when we are with God and other people for eternity knowing that that was a blip on the radar. That moment of crucifixion and the tomb in our own life is a blip on the radar of, our, of an eternal life that is being given out of genuine concern for other people. And so we are invited to do that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. If we can be trust in that gift being so full, we can, like Paul, pour ourselves out like a drink offering, risking ourselves emotionally, knowing God will give us what we need through the sorrow and the dark times with joy coming on the other side. Let's pray. God in heaven, we need help to do that. We long to be these kind of people that are so filled up and trusting in you and the way that you provided for us that we are not scared to experience sorrow or grief or disappointment or rejection or any other emotional pain that comes with that sacrificial life. We long to have the courage, the bravery, the fearlessness to imitate that love. May we receive that from you again through your cross and resurrection. May we be reminded that you've given up everything for us to be full and complete 
and abundant in you so that we can give our lives away. May our neighbors see it, Lord. May our community witness the difference. May they be drawn in by the possibility of genuine friendship. We need your help, Lord. We praise you with our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We have a chance to enter into communion now where we do a real physical ritual that is ancient, it's 2,000 years old, with real cracker or what seems like cracker, I think. <laughs> Who knows what this stuff is, man? They say it's edible. I think it works. And, and genuine drink in order to remember that God became a real human being, taking on flesh to show us this love and to overcome the threat of Satan and sin and Satan and death. He has forgiven it. He's eliminated it in real life, in real history, in real time and space. And so in real time and space with real elements, we remember this love. And through doing this together with other Christians, we are empowered to leave out of here for another week to live out that narrative of self-emptying love. And so let me read from 1 Corinthians 11 again. And we're going to be taking this in unison. So I'm going to read the first part about taking the, the body and the form of the cracker. We're going to eat that together and let that sit a bit. And then I'll do the same thing for the juice as well. Paul writes, The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread, he blessed it and broke it and said, This is my body, that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now listen to the power of what we just did what it looks back to in history and what it empowers us to look forward to in hope. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. We're looking back at the Lord's death that makes this possible until he comes in the future. We are given everything we need by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Let's stand and celebrate and worship that together.